Now, if you would, take your Bibles, and I want you to open them up in the New Testament to the book of Galatians. And I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 6. As we begin our time together today, I want, to, I want to begin by showing you a picture in just a few moments. It's a picture that actually appeared in our local newspaper two weeks ago. And this picture, just so you know, is a little dismaying. It's a little uncomfortable. But this picture represents where our culture is going at a brisk jog. It's a picture that was taken just after midnight in Lambertville, New Jersey. New Jersey just become the third state to legalize same-sex civil unions. And at midnight, Beth Asaro and Joanne Shaley got married. And also at midnight, there were two other homosexual couples who got married in Asbury Park, New Jersey. Now, Asbury Park means something to me because it is a seaside uh, town where I spent a lot of my high school years. And Asbury Park is now becoming a, a center for same-sex couples and same-sex marriage. And the pressure men and women to approve same-sex marriage is surging in our direction and it will soon be at our doorstep. And that raises a number of questions and it raises a number of concerns. And so thus we are going through a two-part series that we have entitled The Same-Sex controversy and our, our culture has created quite a fog on this issue and we want to try to cut through all of that fog as we address all of this. But I want you to know that when we begin to address this subject matter of the same-sex controversy and we do so with an evaluative eye, we open ourselves up to criticism, to be declared to be archaic, to be declared intolerant, to be declared homophobic, to be declared even hateful towards homosexuals. And I think it just raises the question, is it still possible to oppose homosexual activity and still care for someone who is homosexual? And the answer to that question is yes, it is possible. And again, I want to stress the fact that I have, all the way back into my high school days, uh, inner interacted with people that struggle with this whole subject matter, and that has continued on all the way up into the very present time. I have had some very good friends of mine who have struggled with same gender issues and struggled with same sex attraction. And I just want to emphasize I have, I have no disrespect, no lack of concern for, no hate towards someone who struggles with those things. I have no desire to denunciate or demean someone for whom Christ died. But it's important for me to say that homosexual activity and homosexuality poses an incredible danger and harm to us. I likened it last week to a downed electrical wire that would be still having power in it and it would be flopping around. And if we had one of those out in the parking lot, it would be very wrong for me to be silent about it. And the same thing is true when it comes to the same-sex controversy and homosexuality in our culture. Last week we began this two-part series and, and we looked at what we called the heart of the controversy. And the heart of the controversy was looking at what God thinks, what Scripture says. And if you look at, at, at what Scripture says and then you look at our culture's response, we have to, to 
agree that our society appears to be drinking from the well of relativism instead of being refreshed by the absolute truth of God's Word. Remember, absolute truth means it's true for all people in all places at all times. And the absolute truth of God's Word labels homosexual behavior and homosexual acts as sin, and yet the Bible offers hope for those who struggle with those things. And we must state clearly that homosexuality is not an unpardonable sin. In fact, my heart in all of this is reflected very well by Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, where Paul writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any trespass, which would include homosexual activity, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. And so as we address this subject matter, I would like to do so in a spirit of gentleness with the aim of restoring and healing people, at the same time looking to myself, because, which is true of all of us, we are not invulnerable to the many kinds of traps of sin that are out there. That's my heart. Now today we want to look at, in this, in this whole examining of the same-sex controversy, we want to look at the issues and per- perils in the controversy. In fact, we want to look at two issues and we want to look at two perils. We want to look, first of all, at the issue of, isn't homosexuality inborn? That's what we're being told. And that leads us to a second issue then, isn't homosexuality unchangeable? which we're also being told. And then I want to look at two perils from the controversy. Number one, the peril for marriage and the family. And number two, the peril of the loss of freedom. And these are very real perils for us. Now this is going to be, just so you know, (laughs) very difficult because I have a lot of ground to cover. And I'm probably going to be speaking fairly quickly And we're going to move through a lot of important stuff today. But before we even get into looking at the issues and the perils, I want to clarify something, and it's important. Those of you who know me well know that I want to be very fair to people. And I think one of the ways to be fair is to realize that when you're dealing with people with same-sex struggles, we need to understand there are four stages of same-sex struggles. And I encourage you to even write these down. They're important to understand. The first stage of same-sex struggle is the attraction stage. At this stage, someone is having gender identity issues. They are having struggles with same-sex attraction and same-sex feelings. But it's important, we emphasized this last time, there is a difference between sexual attraction and sexual activity. There is a difference between proclivity towards the same sex and the practice of same-sex acts. They are different. And sometimes people go, wait a minute, I don't don't understand. What do you mean that they're different? You can have sexual attraction issues and and that's different from sexual... Yes. (laughs) Now, my wife and I have already talked about this, but here's the truth. I'm a married man. And you know what? 
I find other women attractive. I do. And many of you men who are married will have to admit that you may be married, but you find other women attractive. But that is not sin unless I act on that or unless I entertain mental lust. Do you see the difference between sexual attraction and sexual activity? And the same thing is true as it's true in the heterosexual realm in the realm of same-sex struggles. So you can have attraction issues and it not be sin because it hasn't been acted on or hasn't become mental lust at all. And again, I want to stress this. I have had personal friends who have struggled with these things. Not very long ago, I had someone come into my office, and again, they wanted to talk to me about same-sex struggles. And I said to them again, when they brought it up, and they thought I was going to be surprised, I said, I'm not surprised. I already had this pretty well figured out. But really what they were talking about was this first stage. I'm having all these attraction issues. I haven't acted on them. I don't know what to do with all of this. See, just because you have thoughts and just because you have attractions, those things, thoughts and attractions by themselves, does not make somebody gay, does not make someone homosexual. It's just the first stage, the attraction stage. And here's something I want you to know, that those who struggle with same-sex attraction... That was not a willing choice that they made. Where they said, you know what, I think I just would like to kind of get into uh, same-sex attraction struggles. No, no, no. In fact, if you talk to them, you'll find out that most of them, when they're struggling at that stage, will attempt to deny it, will attempt to repress it, will attempt to pray it away. What causes same-sex attraction struggle? Well, the causes are variable, and yet they're very common. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we move along. But the first stage in same-sex struggles is the attraction stage. The second stage is the behavior stage. This is where someone goes from attraction to now committing a homosexual act, a sex act. The third stage is, is the identity stage. This is where someone comes to the point when they say, a homosexual is what I am. And they have a level of comfort and a level of acceptance where they begin to say, this is right for me. And in the fourth stage of same-sex struggles is the lifestyle stage. This is one when someone begins to regularly practice homosexual activity in their life. Now, the stage two, three, and four are sinful stages. Stage one is not. And again, I've known people at all of these stages, and I've known people at all of these stages who have found victory in what Jesus Christ can do in their life. But again, I want to say homosexuality, it's not an unpardonable sin. Listen, again, think about this for a minute. We're all sexual beings. God created that dimension in us, in humanity, and frequently what we do is we distort it. And all of us, every single one of us in this room, are sinners. We're all vulnerable. We all have to battle the world, the flesh, and the devil. We all have what we call theologically the sickness of total depravity. 
Total depravity means that every dimension of my being has been tainted by sinfulness, including the sexual dimension of my life and yours. And sexual sins are bad, they are damaging, but they're not the worst sin. In fact, if I was going to label the worst sin, the most damaging sin, I would probably say that sin is pride. But all that just to simply set us up now to take a look at the issues. Let's begin with issue number one. Isn't homosexuality inborn? That's what we're being told. People will say to us, it's like eye color. You're either born with blue eyes or brown eyes. And they're saying that you're either born homosexual or you're born heterosexual. It's a genetic thing. That's the claim out there. And they go on to say, if it's genetic, then... It cannot be immoral, and it must be affirmed. In fact, homosexual advocate Mel White said this about homosexuality. He says, it's a gift from God to be embraced and celebrated and lived with integrity. Is homosexuality inborn? Now, I want to just be very, very blunt about it. The truth of the matter is, in no way, shape, or form has it ever been proven to be genetic. It hasn't even come close. It has never been acknowledged by the scientific community that homosexuality is inborn and genetic. Now, in this forum, we do not have an opportunity to take, say, the top five studies that are utilized to so-called prove this and deal with it. We don't have an opportunity to do that Um, But what I do want to do is I want to address the most frequently cited study. The number one study that is used to prove that homosexuality is inborn. It's a study that was done in 1991 by a man by the name of Simon LaVey. Simon LaVey is a neuroscientist. And what he did is he took 41 dead people and examined their brains, the hypothalamus in their brains, trying to find a genetic indicator of homosexuality. Nineteen of those people were allegedly homosexual men. Sixteen of them were allegedly heterosexual men. And six of them were allegedly heterosexual women. And when he released his study in August of 1991... Here's what he reported. He reported that he saw that there were different sizes of hypothalamus in different people. And indications he seemed to indicate was that among those who had been identified as being homosexual and gay, their hypothalamus was smaller. Therefore, a genetic indication of homosexuality. Now let me just unpack a little bit about Simon LeVay's study. Number one, it's important to note that Simon LaVey himself was a practicing and is a practicing homosexual. It's also important to note that it was after the death of his gay lover that he set out on a goal. He said, I want to find a genetic cause to homosexuality. That's what I'm looking for. Now, if you know anything about science, you're going to know right off the bat that's going to likely skew someone's investigation. Not only that, but a bunch of scientists have continued to evaluate LeVay's work, and I'm not going to tell you about all of it, but they have found large numbers of inaccuracies in his study. 
for example, just one of them is that he never verified the sexual orientation of these bodies that he was examining. Never really verified it. Of the 16 who were alleged to be heterosexual, six of those 16 died of AIDS. So there was just absolutely a, a lot of holes in the whole study and a number of inaccuracies. Another thing that was interesting is we know from science that behavior can affect your brain. So one of the questions this study raises is which was the cause and which was the effect? If indeed, and there was all kinds of inaccuracies, his, his numbers don't even add up well, but if indeed there was a difference in the shape of the hypothalamus, was that what caused homosexuality or was it that homosexuality caused the hypothalamus to be different? Now, with all of that being said, you may say, well, well, you know, there probably was some really good reasons yet for still concluding that homosexuality was inborn from Simon LeVay's study. Listen, I, you know what? Despite, despite all the things I just cited, you know what the kicker on this one is? Three years after his study came out, this is what Simon LeVay said about his study. It's important to stress what I didn't find. I did not prove that homosexuality was genetic or find a genetic cause for being gay. I didn't show that gay men are born that way, which is the most common mistake people make in interpreting my work. Now, did you, did you hear what he said? This is the guy who put out the most cited study to prove that homosexuality is genetic, and he said, I did not prove that homosexuality was genetic or find a cause for being gay. I didn't show that gay men are born that way. Now, you're not going to hear that out there, but when you hear the claims and you investigate them, this is where it leads us. I want to quote to you another lesbian author. Her name is Dr. Camille Paglia, and this is what this lesbian author says. She says, Homosexuality is not normal. No one is born gay. The idea is ridiculous. Homosexuality is an adaptation. That means something that happens during our life, not an inborn trait. So I want to say again to the, the question, the issue, is homosexuality inborn? The point is it's totally unproven. Totally unproven. Now, let me say this. Let me clarify this. Even if it were proven that it were inborn, even if somehow a genetic connection was verified, that does not make the behavior morally right. You know, as you look around to you, to your left and your right, there are some people in this room who have been born with a genetic predisposition to alcoholism. They have now identified a particular gene in 77% of the cases of alcoholics. As you look around this room, there are some people who were born with a genetic predisposition to violence. But that doesn't justify alcoholic behavior. That does not justify violent behavior. 
See, just because we have inborn tendencies doesn't make our behavior acceptable. And I want to go back to all of us as humanity. We have all been born into sin, right? We've all been tainted with total depravity. Every dimension of our being has been tainted by sin. That's true for all of us. And yet it would be wrong to assume because we've been born that way that somehow God approved or God has ordained our behavior, our sinful behavior as being okay. Listen, some of us, any of us can be born with a predisposed tendency to anger or violence or greed or lust or gossip. That does not justify acting out on those inborn tendencies. And even though it has not been proven by any way, shape, or form that homosexuality is inborn, even if it were, it doesn't excuse the behavior. Now, some of you are saying, well, well then what are the causes? What are the causes? What, what happens in this adaptation that happens in life? And there are a multiplicity of influences. But I want you to know those causes are rooted in several things. They are rooted in emotional brokenness, they are rooted in sexual experimentation and they are rooted in sexual exploitation. And we're going to be recommending some resources at the end of our time. And if you will look into those resources, it will help you to unpack much more fully than I can do in a message like this, the causes of homosexuality. We have a second issue we want to look at. Not only is it, is it inborn, but isn't homosexuality unchangeable? I mean, after all, that's what we're being told. And if you cannot change it, then how can we judge it as wrong? Well, go back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which is a place we were at last time. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want to remind you what it says there in verse 9. He says to all of us, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And then he gives a list of sin. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then there's just that refreshing, beautiful verse in verse 11 where he says, Such were some of you. Past tense. Some of you were homosexuals, but you were washed but you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's he saying? Homosexuality is changeable. But I want you to notice something. Look very carefully at what Paul says here in verse 11. I want you to notice what he does not say, particularly regarding those who are homosexuals. Did you notice what he does not say? He does not say... You are all now happily married to the opposite sex. He doesn't say that. Some of them were likely married to the opposite sex now after their encounter with Jesus Christ. Some were likely living a life of chastity after their interaction with Jesus Christ. He does not say of these homosexuals who are now washed and sanctified and justified, he doesn't say to them, all your sexual desires have now vanished. 
Look, there, there are other sexual sins involved here. Those who are adulterers, those who were fornicators, and such were some of you. He says, some of you were adulterers before, some of you were fornicators before. And he's not saying to them, all your sexual desires have vanished. He's saying, no, but because of your encounter with Jesus Christ, you found victory over that sinful behavior. That's what he's communicating. It's not that it's unchangeable. It's just that there can be victory over homosexual sinful behavior. And likely, I think it required daily coping, just as it did with those who'd been adulterers and those who were fornicators. Daily dependence on God was needed. Joe Dallas, who himself is a former homosexual, and he wrote a book called The Gay Gospel, uh, part of his book is he has a dialogue in his book, and what you have are these pro-gay statements and arguments, and then he has a response in the dialogue. And here's part of what that dialogue says. Here's the pro-gay argument. Well, I don't believe God wants me to deny something I've had all my life, something I've tried to change. That just doesn't sound like God to me. And here's the response. That's funny. It sounds exactly like God to me. And it sounds like he requires of you the same thing he requires of all of us. He asks us to deny something we've had all our lives, ourselves, and take up our crosses daily to follow him. He knows we've tried to change ourselves, and he knows we can't. But Jesus never said we had to change ourselves. He told us to follow him and to live obediently. The inward change is up to him. And it's very clear from verse 11 in chapter 6 that in Paul's day, there were those who had been homosexuals and they'd found victory. And I want you to know, there are people in our day, they're all around us, who had been practicing homosexuals who found victory through Jesus Christ. And I'm aware of some of these people. Some of them have experienced victory from homosexual behavior without really seeing a huge change in their same-sex feelings. Some of them have experienced victory from homosexual behavior, and they have experienced the change in their feelings and attractions, and they've seen their homosexual feelings diminish and their heterosexual feelings awaken. And uh, again, I want to refer you to the resources that we have to come. And one of the, the key resources we have is a little handout out there called Is There Hope for the Homosexual? And it's a, a discussion on change and hope with Mike Haley and Melissa Ferrier. Very, very helpful to read. Is it changeable? Yes, it is. Now, the, the second thing we want to look at, we're going to have to look at this fairly quickly, is to look at some of the perils of the same-sex controversy. And, and again, I want to remind you that there is a march, there's an oncoming march coming at us, and it's coming at us internationally even, regarding same-sex marriage, and it's moving deep into our culture, and it brings with it great peril. And the first peril we want to look at is the peril for marriage and the family. 
And I want to remind you, we talked a little bit about this last week, that God is the one who invented marriage. God designed marriage. God implemented marriage from the very beginning. And you can go back to the book of beginnings, Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, and it it becomes very clear. You see it over and over again. It says God made the male and female, male and female, male and female, male and female. You see it keep getting mentioned. And he comes up with the idea of marriage. He says the male is supposed to leave his family. The female leads her family. They come together to be permanently glued and then they are to have a family and that's what being married is all about God invented it God implemented it it's his thing he designed it and what's interesting is that very thing is echoed by Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 19 verses 4 to 6 Jesus says in in my day it's just exactly like it was back in Genesis in the very beginning God made the male and female and he wanted them to come together and he wanted them to be permanently glued and that's what marriage is God is the one who designed it he invented it he implemented it and I want you to know men and women his design of marriage is worthy of being valued and guarded and protected. Now sometimes people will say, well, it's okay, we don't want to get rid of of marriage between males and females, but why can't we just allow those who are into the same sex area of life, why can't we allow them to get married? I mean, what will it really hurt? What's it really going to hurt? I mean, why can't we just tolerate that? I mean, they just want to have their house over here. They don't want to bother anybody else. It's not really going to affect other people. I mean, why would we deny them legal status of being like a husband and a wife? You ever hear anybody talk that way? Man, I'm telling you, that's coming at us fast and furious. Erwin Lutzer gives us a great analogy of this, I think. He says, imagine you're on a a large boat and you want to get to the other side of the lake. When one man insists that he has a right to drill a hole through the bottom of his side of the boat. When you object, he argues for tolerance and reminds you that you can just stay on your side with your friends. What he does on his side has no bearing on what you do on your side. But as the water begins to seep into the boat, you are suddenly aware that, like it or not, what one person does on his side of the boat affects everyone in the boat. And men and women, the boat that we are on is the boat of our society and our culture. And it is a complete myth to believe that what some people do on this side of the boat will not have an effect on anybody else that's on the boat. I can absolutely prove that to you. If you lived through the 60s like I did, this is the kind of thing you would hear. What difference does it really make if we want to get involved with drugs? Taking drugs doesn't really harm anybody else. You don't have to take drugs. You can just go over there. You can be on your end of the boat We'll be over on our end of the boat, and it won't affect the boat. Hogwash. The presence and the growth of the drug culture, every one of us would agree, has had a negative impact on our culture. It just proves the point. 
You can't be over here saying, I want to drill just a little hole. I'll be over here by myself. It won't affect anybody else on the boat. And I want to be able to say to those who want to redefine marriage, where do you think you get the right to redefine this? I mean, the intent of marriage was a man and a woman coming together in a permanent, exclusive, domestic relationship that then would model for children one day what it means to be male and female so the next generation learns about it. That's the design of marriage. And God is the architect of marriage, and men and women, we tamper with it at our own peril. And sometimes people say, well, you're just talking about the religious thing about marriage there. It's just the, relig you know, the, re <laughs> the religious end of marriage there. No, 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 no. Marriage is rooted deep down into human nature. Have you noticed that people who don't even have the Bible, what do you see them doing? Males and females getting married. Why is that? Because it's rooted deep down into human nature. It's deep down there. Do you know the traditional marriage between a man and a woman? It's the foundation for all of the culture of Asia and Africa and Australia and Europe and the Americas. God designed marriage. And it's rooted deep down into human nature. And here's what happens. When you have a lesbian couple or a homosexual male couple and they say, we want to be married together and we want to have a family. You know really what they're saying? They're saying that the father or the mother, whatever the case may be, in the family is really irrelevant. That's not what the evidence indicates. It should come as no surprise to those who know God that studies clearly show that children that are raised in a loving, healthy, two-parent family, where there's a mom and a dad, by far and away are healthier children. They're more well-adjusted. They're more law-abiding. They do better in school. They are more stable, and they are more secure. Why is that? Because that's part of God's design. For example, let me just tell you some of this stuff. This is really interesting. Stanton and Meyer... Um, they write this. They say, go to any playground and close your eyes and listen to the parents. Who is usually saying, be careful, not so fast, not so high? And who usually says, go for it, go higher, go faster? Of course, the fathers are most likely encouraging the children to push limits, to swing a little higher, to run further, to ride their bikes a little faster, throw the ball a little harder. And mothers are more likely to encourage safety, reserve, and playing it safe. They go on to write that fathers are more likely to help children prepare for the reality and harshness of the real world, building confidence and problem-solving skills. Mothers are more inclined to help protect and comfort against the world, offering security. And those of you who have been married will know that the difference between mom and dad can cause some disagreement on what is best for the child. And we've had some of those discussions. But here's what they say. The difference is essential for children. Either of these parenting styles by themselves can be unhealthy. 
One can tend towards encouraging risk without consideration of consequences. The other tends to avoid risk, which can fail to build independence, confidence, and progress. But joined together, they keep each other in balance and help children remain safe while expanding their experiences and confidence. Now, I'll tell you something. There's something to this. There's the design behind all of this. A major study showed that when speaking to children, mothers and fathers tend to be different. Mothers are more likely to simplify their words and speak on a child's level. Most men are not as inclined to modify their language for the child. Mother's way facilitates, I can get it out, facilitates immediate communication. Father's way challenges the child to expand his or her vocabulary and linguistic skills, an important building block of academic success. Now, I want to tell you something. You're going to see this is bringing out some passion in me because it's so vitally true. Do you know that girls with involved fathers are more likely to select for themselves good husbands because they have a proper standard by which to judge all candidates. Fathers themselves also help weed out bad candidates. I am guilty of said thing. And I'm not through doing that yet. Boys raised with fathers are more likely to be good husbands because they can emulate their father's successes and learn from their failures. I did that with my dad. I learned from his successes and I learned from his failures. Because they go on to write, this is perhaps why societies with involved fathers are more likely to be female-affirming cultures. Did you know that? Girls and boys with married mothers learn from their mothers what healthy and respectful female relationships with men look like. Girls who observe their mothers confidently and lovingly interacting with their fathers learn how to interact confidently with men. What a shocker. God invented marriage and he implemented marriage. And there is more to marriage in the family than meets the eye. And again, I want to say, we tamper with this as a culture at our own peril. Now, now sometimes people will say, wait a minute, Bruce. I mean, you're talking about traditional marriage. And, and the last time we looked, traditional marriage in our culture wasn't doing real well. A lot of divorce a lot of broken families. And I would say to that, that's true. But then I would ask the question, why? Something wrong with traditional marriage and its design? I don't think so. Well, what's happened? Well, people have practiced it in a flawed manner. They've left God out. It doesn't work. And for those of us who classify ourselves as part of the heterosexual community when it comes to, to traditional marriage not doing well, you know what? That is to our shame. That is to our own discouragement. Why are we letting that happen? And, and even if traditional marriage is not working very well at times, does that mean that we just abolish it? We just throw it out? Have you noticed that we have laws against murder? Have you also noticed that people still murder people? Does that mean that the laws against murder are flawed and we just need to abolish those laws? No. Not at all. 
And I'll tell you something, when you start redefining traditional marriage, when you start redefining what monogamy means, I mean, when you throw out, when you blow up the definition in a culture, you have no clue what you're going to end up with. I can guarantee you that there where you start redefining marriage and, and you're going to have a bisexual trio that can be declared married. You're going to have polygamy going on where you can say, well, if you want to have six wives, I mean, there is no more traditional marriage anymore. We've redefined the whole thing. Let's just, you know, whatever you want to do. You're going to end up with an adult and a child being classified, a minor being classified as a marriage. That's where this is going to end up. You're going to end up with a new little thing that's being talked about now called polyamory. I don't know if you've heard about polyamory, but it's very, very popularly being discussed right now. Poly means many, amory means love. And really what polyamory refers to is the whole concept that you can have more than one person that you're sexually intimate with at the same time. And you know what's really interesting? You take polyamory and you Google that, and you know what I did? What happened when I did that? 1.1 million hits on the internet about polyamory because people are beginning to push this and push this. And you know what? You blow up the definition of marriage and you're going to have a situation where any combination of genders and any combination of numbers can be declared a marriage relationship. And once that gets legalized in our culture, public school will be required to teach that homosexuality is an equal option to traditional marriage. And the church is going to be pressured to perform these kinds of marriages, same-sex marriages, which leads us to the second peril, and that is the peril of our freedom. There's a tremendous peril in all of this regarding a loss of freedom of speech and a loss of freedom of religion. And men and women, what it means is we need to take a stand somewhere. I like the way James Dobson put it this way. He says, at what point will we be willing to defend what we believe? Will parents object if their children are routinely indoctrinated in homosexual ideology or occultism in the public schools? Is that where we take our stand? Will we object if the state tells pastors what they can or can't say from the pulpit? Such a specter, he writes, is not so unimaginable. I don't know if you knew this or not. This is the closest area to us culturally in America. This comes from, from Europe. In Sweden, an evangelical pastor who preached a sermon on Sodom and Gomorrah was convicted of verbal violence against homosexuals and sentenced to four weeks in prison. That's what's going on in Europe, and that is the tidal wave that is headed to our culture. And it's already on the continent. I don't know if you know it or not, but already in Canada, speech or writings that criticize homosexuals are a crime in Canada, punishable by a fine or imprisonment. There's the peril of losing our freedom. And it's going to mean that eventually churches and Christian colleges will be fined for refusing to hire homosexuals. That's where we're going. And sometimes people go, okay, 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 okay. Let's not worry about, let's let traditional marriage be there, but, but let's go ahead and do this civil union thing like is being done now in three states and New Jersey just implemented it. That'll be okay. Let's just do the civil union thing. I have this to say about that. That's just marriage by a different name. That's all it is. It still dilutes and still devalues marriage as God 
designed it. And marriage, men and women, is worthy of being protected. And marriage needs to be modeled. And I want to just be saying to you as bluntly as I can, if you are married, you have a responsibility to the culture that you carry with you to model in a godly way what God says marriage is. Now we want to talk about some life response, how we can respond to all this information. We've had a lot of stuff that we had to shoot at you. I'm going to suggest three things around three words. We need to recognize, we need to resist, and we need to be ready. First thing we need to do is we need to recognize something. And that is that all of us, I don't care who you are, all of us face an internal battleground. And we need to recognize that. Just this week, I received the horrible news that a pastor friend of mine, who's a senior pastor of a church, fairly large church, hired a very close friend of his to be the associate pastor with him at the church. And their two wives, best friends. Senior pastor ends up having an affair with his good friend's wife. And I read about that and I say, is that any less scandalous than what Ted Haggard did in Colorado? We need to recognize that we all face this internal battleground. And Peter told us that what we need to do, 1 Peter 2.11, is we need to abstain from fleshly lusts that wage war against the soul. That is the same goal that we all have. And if you struggle with same gender attractions, in one sense you're just like the rest of us. We all have to deal with unhealthy lusts and desires. And we need to recognize that, men and women. Nothing's worse than pointing a finger it's someone who's having to struggle in principle with the very same thing that you struggle with and maybe laughing at them about their failure when yours can be just as significant in the eyes of God. Second thing we need to do is we need to resist. Because we're in, a, in this struggle and, we, and we, we need to recognize it, we need to resist firm in our faith. And that's our job. Deliverance is available, not only in coming to know Christ, but in walking with Jesus Christ. He is in the transformation business. That's what he does. And all you have to do is go back to 1 Corinthians 6 and read through that list in verses 9 and 10 and then look at the transformation that happened in verse 11. And the third thing we need to do, I believe, is we need to be ready to minister. We need to be ready to minister. Is, is it okay for those who struggle with homosexuality to attend Wildwood? And the answer is, yes. Will our doors be open to those who struggle with same-sex issues? The answer is yes. Will we continue to teach what the Bible says? The answer, as long as you have this leadership team, is yes. And if you are struggling with same-sex issues, especially if you're just really questioning how all that fits, I am so glad that you are here this is a good place to be because we want to be a healing church. And if you are struggling with those things, if you have in the past, if you're in the middle of it right now, I would love to hear some of your stories. I would love to have you write me a letter. I would love to have you send me an email. We need to be ready to minister. And I believe that God is calling this church to be a difference maker in this community. 
And uh, that's, by the way, we have a list of resources that you'll notice this green insert that's, that you received. And, and these are incredibly great resources. There are books here. If you have a family member, co-worker, or friend who struggles with same-sex issues, When Homosexuality Hits Home by Joe Dallas, a tremendous book. If you're male and you struggle, Desires and Conflict by Joe Dallas, and You Don't Have to Be Gay by Jeff Conrad. If you're female and you struggle in this area, Restoring Sexual Identity by Ann Palk. Uh, Understanding and Help for Ministering to Those Who Struggle, God's Grace and the Homosexual, the Homosexual Next Door by Alan Chambers. All of these books are on the table out there, so you can get a look at them. Great resources. And then we have resources of of web links. All of these web links are found on our website. They have been there for years. They are there to point people to. In fact, we're going to have all these resources listed permanently on our website. They're going to be in our Light Source bookstore permanently. We need to be ready to minister. As we close, I want to just close with a, a reminder of a little story that happened to Jesus. And it comes in John chapter 8. What happens is that Jesus is with the scribes and the Pharisees and they, they, they drag this woman in. And, and it's a woman, they said, who was caught right in the middle of adultery. I mean, they got her right out of the bed, probably dragged right into a group of men totally naked. Can't even imagine the amount of humility and shame that was for her. And, and, and they bring her in, and they want Jesus to pronounce a verdict that she should be stoned. And, and Jesus does something very unexpected. He crouches down, and he begins to write in the dirt. And they begin to push, push, push for a verdict from Jesus. And so he eventually stands up, and he looks at them, and he says, If you never sinned, you may stone her. And then he bows down and crouches down again and he, he starts to write in the dirt again, I think probably making a list of the sins, some of them sexual, that the scribes and the Pharisees had done and slowly they all silently leave. And then Jesus looks at the woman and he says, if they don't condemn you, neither do I. Go and sin no more. And men and women, the church is not called to condemn people. It is not called to humiliate and shame people. But it's also not called to compromise the truth. And as a church, we must respond with repentance about our own sins. But also we must offer forgiveness and restoration to those who are willing to come to a Savior who can change them. I love the words of Jesus. He said, The one who comes to me, I will never drive away. Let's pray together. And then we're going to sing a closing song. Father, we thank you for just providing us the opportunity to wrestle with all of these things. And man, there's so much information to digest and so much emotion in all of this. But we would pray that you would continue to grow Wildwood into being a healing church for all people who struggle. Father, for those who are really struggling with this issue of same-sex stuff, I, I would pray that they might be able to step up to the plate and, and express to someone in some environment that they're struggling and they need help. And we pray that our, our, our body would have a number of people who would, who would just feel called in a special way to minister. 
to this area of sin struggle. Lord, we thank you that Jesus Christ is great and mighty and powerful. We thank you that he changes lives. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.